Continuing, and perhaps today we'll be able to finish the tafsir of Surah Al Bala, inshallah. And we reach the statement of Allah, Let's first of all remind ourselves where we got up to in the surah. What have we covered so far? So we said that Allah said, La uqsimu balad. And we spoke about what it means to swear by, for Allah to swear by Makkah, and the different understandings of that. Wa anta balad. While you are going to be permitted to fight in this city, no one else was permitted to fight in the city except for the Messenger of Allah for a short period of time. And then after that, it became it became haram like it was in the beginning. And that Allah swore by the parent and their child. We said this might mean Adam and his offspring. We said Ibrahim and Ismail. But we said that the stronger opinion in the tafsir of the ayah is that covers every parent and every child. Because gen the general idea of parent fatherhood and having children is something عظيم عند Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's something huge in the sight of Allah. Look at how Allah started off this whole creation with Adam. And then from Adam, all of the human beings came, including the prophets, the messengers, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu So the parents that have children is a great thing in the sight of Allah. It's not a small thing in the sight of Allah. It's something serious in the sight of Allah. The parent and their children, or the parent and their, and their child. 
Then we spoke about the statement of Allah Azza wa Jalla Qad khalaqna al-insana fi That man has been created in a state of toil In a state of problems and difficulties and hardships And how life is just one hardship after another Even when things are easy for you You still find things to be hard in some way or another So we spoke about the kabad The Mukabada, the tough struggles that you have to go through in life, and that this is something that even before you're born, it starts, and when you're born, it gets worse, and then as you go and grow older, it just keeps getting more and more and more. And that this is something that should raise your iman, not lower your iman, because you should see these struggles and think, This is what Allah and His Messenger promised us. So we should take the truth of Islam and see the truth of Islam in the struggles we go through. Because we see we're going through hardships, we're going through struggles, we're going through a hard time, and we're actually seeing that this is the promise of Allah. Allah told us, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدْ We created man in a, in a situation where he's always struggling, always working, always going through hardships, mashaqqah, Troubles and problems. And we said that this also gives you a desire for Jannah. Because it tells you that, okay, you know, this life, this dunya, whatever you do in this dunya, Wallah, get the money that you can write as many zeros on the bank balance as you like. You will not escape the kabad that Allah created for you in this life. Whatever you do. How much money you have, how many times, whatever, from marriage, from children, from money, from whatever you have, whether you are working, not working, you are going to have this struggle. So ultimately, you can't escape it until you go to Jannah, which is why, for example, when they asked the Imam Ahmed, when will you rest? He said that when my feet are in Jannah. Or he said, when I put my feet in Jannah. And this is when you will find peace. This is when you will find the struggle stop. Until then, we created man in a situation where they're always struggling, always suffering, always with problems, always with difficulties. Does he think that nobody is going to have, nobody has any power over him. I.e., does he think that Allah has no power over him? Allah created him in struggle and suffering, and he created that human being in a situation where that human being is struggling and suffering, and then he thinks that nobody has the ability to do anything to him, as if he is the owner of the world and everything that is in it. He says, I wasted... Money on top of money. We said lubada, it means mulabada, meaning on piles on top of each other. One pile on top of the other pile on top of the other pile. Ahlaktu malan lubada. I used up all this money. And we said this is not sadaqah because if it was sadaqah, the phrase would not be used like this. Ahlaktu malan lubada. You don't say about sadaqah, I burnt all of this. You know, money, piles of money. 
I just burnt it all up. I just used it all up. I used the piles of money. You would say, أنفقت مالاً لبداً I spent for Allah. تصدقت بمالاً لبداً I spent, I gave sadaqah with these piles of money. But he didn't say that. He said, أهلكت Allah tells us this man who Allah created in suffering, Allah created in hardship, Allah created with difficulties, this man who thinks nobody can do anything to him, he says, All this money, I just used it up. As if he just put a, you know, put a flame to it. I had money that was piled on top of money, on top of money, on top of money, and I just got rid of all of it. Does he think there is nobody that sees him when he was spending this money? Remember Ibn Jarir said he spent the money against Islam. I want to stop on that just for a second because I alluded to it last time, but I really want, you know, I'm, I, I frequently hear people talking about uh, conspiracy theories, talking about the enemies of Islam, talking about you know, the, uh, the way the enemies of Islam are plotting against Islam. And a lot of, you know, this group is doing this and this secret group is doing that. طيب. I think here there is something that a person should do. And that is that the people who have an interest in this kind of thing, and it troubles them all the time, and they're always thinking about these different groups and conspiracies and whatever. Go back to the Qur'an. And see what does the Quran say about the enemies of Allah and their plots. And when you do that, you will become balanced. You won't become extreme because if you're just getting your information from YouTube videos about the secret society and that secret society, you become you become like a mad person. You start seeing pictures everywhere, eyes on the floor and in the walls and you know this person drove past me and he's watching me and you start to become paranoid. Likewise the person who says there are no plots and there are no plans, this person is also extreme. But the one who goes back to the Quran, they find a very balanced methodology as it relates to this. Allah tells us that the enemies of Islam have plots and plans. Allah says they have plotted a plot that if that this plot it would be enough to remove the mountains. If you did this plot against the mountain, you would remove the mountain with it. What did Allah say though? But all of their plots are with Allah. Allah knows all the things they're plotting. And this is also mentioned in Surah Al-Balad. Ibn Jarir said he spent these piles of money to destroy Islam. In other words, he's saying, I piled money up to the ceiling and all of it, I spent it in this way and that way to destroy Islam and the Muslims. Then what does Allah say? Does he think nobody sees him when he spends that money? Allah saw him. And Allah said, Allah. They made a plot and Allah made a plot. 
and Allah is the best of those who plot. Uh, I think if you were to look at all of the different ayat of the Quran, you can certainly see that the enemies of Islam plot against Islam. And I think there are so many ayat in the Quran that tell us that the enemies of Islam plot against Islam. Without mentioning particular people, groups, names, but there are, there are tens of ayat in the Quran that tell us that the enemies of Islam are plotting. They are plotting a plot and I'm plotting a plot. That's the first thing. Their plot involves spending huge amounts, insane amounts of money. I spent these piles, the money is so much, it's piled on top of each other. And they spent it all to attack Islam. And this is something you see with your eyes. You don't need to believe in any you know, secret things. Yani. You could just look with your eyes. Look at the amount of money that is spent on this entertainment and just taking the Muslims away from their deen and corrupting them. Money that you... The numbers just become staggering. Like you, you're looking at the, the, the numbers and just thinking, this much money, it's as if it didn't exist in the world. It's just money upon money upon money. And they spend it to hurt Islam and to hurt the Muslims. There's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, Allah Azza wa Jal doesn't tell you to panic over it. Allah Azza wa Jal is constantly reassuring you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala controls what they're doing. Like Allah Azza wa Jal uh, told us, uh, in Surah is it in Surah Al-Anfal? Let's get my way it is anyways. But Allah said, uh, They will spend that money. They will spend that money. Then they will feel regretful that they spent the money. Then they will be defeated. Allah told us, they're going to spend huge amounts of money to take the people away from the path of Allah. They're going to spend that money. Then that money is become, going to become what for them? Hasra. They're going to become regretful. They're going to start saying, oh, we shouldn't have spent it like that. We wasted it. We didn't really hurt these Muslims like we were supposed to. Thumma yughlabun. Then they're going to be defeated. So really a person should be, should have a balance. Some people, wallahi, they get into this so much that perhaps they will reach the level where they commit shirk billahi azza They make a partner with Allah. Why? Because they start to fear, other than Allah, the fear that's only for Allah. They start to say that there are people who watch everything you do. There are people who hear everything you do. Allah Azzawajal is the one who sees everything you do. Allah is the one who hears everything you do. No one has that characteristic except Allah Jalla fi ula. People might hear 90% of what you do, nobody hears everything that you do except Allah And then people start to panic so much about what the enemies of Islam are doing that they start to become paranoid and they start to distance themselves from Islam. So you see, maybe they don't come to the masjid because the masjid is part of the conspiracy and the imam is part of the conspiracy and the ulama are part of the conspiracy. And, like, and so they, become, they start to become like a mad person. Like a mad person. 
But if they were to listen to what the Quran says, they're plotting and Allah is plotting. Like in the end, whose plot is going to win? There's no contest. Allah's plot against the plot of his enemies is so great that while they're plotting, they're plotting against who? Themselves. Like Allah told us about those uh, people who were given the book, Ladina Utul Kitab. Uh, that Allah, Allah told us that they want to min kitabi an wama illa There are a group of the people of the book who want to misguide you, but the only people they misguide is themselves. They make such efforts, huge efforts, but their efforts, all of it is just coming back against themselves. So a person should be in the middle. Yes, Allah told us that the enemies of Allah have got big plans against Islam. But those plans, Allah will take care of them. Our job is not to fret and worry and panic to the extent that we start to lose our religion and maybe even make a partner with Allah in fear of Him because of how much we're scared of other people. At the same time, we know that Allah controls everything that they do and all their plans are just going to come back against them. So what does a Muslim have to do? A Muslim, you do your best to uh, learn your religion, to practice it, to teach it to other people, to spread it. And the rest you leave to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You didn't see the Prophet sallallahu Imagine how he, his life was in Medina. You had around him munafiqoon. You imagine that. People in his masjid who are pretending to be Muslim who are not. Who are not Muslim. And they're mixed in with the community. They're pretending to be Muslim. They're not Muslim. But the Prophet ﷺ didn't allow, he didn't, you know, the companions leave the Prophet ﷺ because maybe you can say he got revelation from Allah and that's why he was calm about it. But the companions also they also didn't let it change the way they practice their religion. We do our best, we get on with our religion, and we leave the rest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So a person like this, and there are many, many ayat of the Qur'an, and all of them tell us that Allah azza wa is in control of what these people are doing, and that these people will not be able to escape Allah azza wa And that's why... This statement, I wasted all of this money I, against Islam, comes between two ayat. Does he think no one has the ability to, to punish him? Does he think that no one sees what he is, what he's doing? So from here we can, we can understand that the, the plots of the enemies of Allah will always end up in ruin. And Allah Azza wa Jal told us, Me and my messengers will be the ones who will be victorious. This is where we got up to. We, we spoke about that Allah Azza wa Jal is the one that gave you two eyes, that Allah Azza wa Jal is the one who gave you your lips. 
that Allah is the one who guided you to know what is right and what is wrong. And we said that this is a, a kind of rebuke from Allah. That Allah is, is rebuking these people. That you are now, you're the one spending your money against Islam. You're the one trying to destroy Islam. And the same two eyes that you're using are the two eyes that Allah gave you. And the lips you are using, that the word, these words are coming out from, they're the lips that Allah gave you. The tongue that you're using, this is the tongue that Allah gave you. And Allah is the one who showed you the way that is right and the way that is wrong. How can you use the things that Allah has given you and then take the wrong path with them when you know that Allah has given you? And that is a general uh, sort of a methodology within the Quran, which is that Allah Azza wa Jal shows you his rububiyyah, his lordship, like his creation and what he's given you and the blessings he's given you, and then uses that to show you and to demonstrate to you why you should be worshipping him and choosing the right path and not the wrong path. How can you choose a different path when Allah is the one who gave you your eyes and your tongue and so on? Okay. We now come to the statement of Allah Aqaba. Here, uh, Imam Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he quotes from Ibn Zayd, rahimahullah ta'ala, falaqatahaman aqaba, afala salaka tariq alati fiha najat wal khayr. He said, falaqatahaman aqaba, the meaning of it is, why doesn't this person, because remember, wahadaynahun najdain, we have guided to one of the two paths. The path of good, the path of wrong. Why doesn't this person take the path of good? That's what Ibn Kathir says. Why hasn't this person When this person was shown two paths, a path that leads to Jannah and a path that leads to Jahannam. And the person knew Allah Azza showed them clearly the path to Jannah and the path to Jahannam. Why doesn't this person take Al-Aqaba? Now, this uh, word uh, Al-Aqaba here, uh, this word Al-Aqaba originally is Al-Tariq Al-Lati Fil Jabal. The path that goes over the, over the mountains, and until today, even in Arabic, you still we still call it, we still call it al-aqaba. Generally speaking, like a path that is, an uphill, uphill path or a path that goes over the mountains, we call it al-aqaba. Why do you think? Allah called. Now, Ibn Kathir, he said that this path is the path of al-najat wal-khayr. It's the path of safety. It's the path of goodness. Why did Allah refer to this path as al-aqaba, the path that is over the mountain, the mountain pass, the path that goes over the mountain? 
why, why not just call it uh, the path of good or the path of safety or the path of Jannah? What, what's, why refer to it as the path that goes over the mountains? Why do we think? We can get some answers from YouTube. Do you have any, any suggestions? Okay, good. I like that. That's an excellent. In fact, that's the same answer that the Sheikh uh, gave. He said, uh, يكون, uh, He mentioned shidda uh, uh, It's going to be a hard and a tough climb. Because it's not something, it's something that's going to require effort. And that's why generally uh, misguidance or choosing the path of misguidance requires very little effort. Choosing the path of misguidance and the path of error doesn't require very much effort. Doesn't require a lot of hard work. You know, you don't have to work really hard to be misguided. You know, let me just work. I'm trying so hard to be misguided. Rather, being misguided appears to be the easier path. Everything is halal for you. And wallahi, subhanAllah, when you look at the Qur'an, wallahi, I could just, this one ayah, I could stop on it all day. Why don't you take the mountain path? Why don't you take the path through the mountains? When you think about it, it's not that Islam is difficult. Islam is not difficult. But the way that when you see people who get misguided, generally speaking, people are misguided through two things, right? We've spoken about this before. They're misguided through shubhahat and shahawat. They're misguided because they're confused about something from a knowledge perspective, right? They, from a knowledge reason, they're confused. Is this right or wrong? And then they get misguided because of their confusion. Or they're misguided because of their desires. And following your desires, generally speaking, is a very easy road to take. And that's why Allah told us, The soul is constantly going towards evil because following your desires is really easy. Eating whatever you want versus being on a diet, just for the purpose of getting the idea across. It's easy to eat whatever you want. It's hard to control yourself and say, no, I'm not going to eat chocolate today. I'm not going to eat cakes. I'm not going to eat biscuits. I'm not going to eat sugar. I'm not going to eat this. It's hard to restrict yourself. It's easy to just say, oh, it's whatever. I'm going to eat whatever I want. It doesn't mean it brings you happiness because after you eat whatever you want, you feel really ill and you feel bloated and you're sitting there thinking, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It doesn't necessarily bring you happiness but actually setting off on that path is really easy compared to the path of restricting yourself. And that's why a lot of people, when they either talking about people entering into Islam or Muslims who are struggling to practice Islam, the problem is that it requires some effort to actually set on that road. And you know when people say, oh, you know, Islam is so restrictive. Islam is restrictive. Of course, Islam is restrictive. What Allah is selling you is expensive. 
That's what the Prophet said. The sil'a is what you, the person in the shop sells you. Yeah. The thing that Allah is selling you is expensive. And by we say ghaliya, really what we should say is valuable, not expensive. We, the, the proper word is valuable. But I wanted to convey the idea that this is an expensive product you're going to get here. This is Jannah, this is valuable. It is, it's not easy. It's not just a case that you just go through your life with your eyes and you shut and your fingers and your ears and you end up in Jannah. It's an aqaba. It's a path over a mountain. Again, is the purpose of that, we're always hearing about how easy the religion of Islam is. Is the purpose of calling it the aqaba to make you like say, oh, look at this mountain. There's no way I can get over this. This is so hard. I may as well just do what I want. It's not the purpose. The purpose is you tell someone, okay, guys, on the other side of this mountain is Jannah. Everything you ever want. No more kebet, no more hardship, no more struggles, no more toil, no more problems. But you just got to pace yourself step by step. Allah loves the continuous deeds. Baby steps, nice and consistent. Get yourself ready. Go climb over the mountain and everything will be fine. It's about preparing you mentally for what is going to come, for what your life is going to be like. Your life is kebet. Even if you take your, the desires, your life is still kebet. You're still going to suffer. Even if you take your desires. But it feels easy. But in reality, it doesn't get you where you want to be. So what we're seeing is based on the tafsir of this surah, the only place where there is real ease and relaxation is Jannah. There are two paths. Actually, the paths are many, but you can divide the paths into two. One single path goes to Jannah. It's a bit of a hard climb. It's a tough climb. You'll have to work hard. You'll have to prepare hard. But you get there and you get everything you ever wanted. The other paths which take you away, look easy, but they don't arrive at any destination. Just stay on them forever, going around, 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 until they take you to Jahannam, and Jahannam is far, far harder, and far, far worse, and far, far more severe than any of the suffering that anyone would ever have in this world. So ultimately, the path that looks easy ends in the worst hardship. And the path that has a little bit of hardship in it, it's a climb, if you're ready for it and prepared for it, you will be able to climb that mountain with the permission of Allah. And Allah has made the religion easy for you. Allah hasn't made the religion hard for you. So he hasn't made the climb to be impossible. He hasn't made the climb to be impossible. He hasn't made it so difficult that you die, you know, you die, you kill yourself trying to do it. He's made it something which is an aqaba. It's a climb. It's a climb. But at the end of the day, it is achievable if you have the right mentality and the right kind of mindset. So a person has to strive against themselves. Mujahadatun nafs. Or like some of them call it, jihadun nafs. You have to fight against yourself. And ultimately, fighting against others is very minor in terms of 
or if not a minor, let's say it's the fruit of fighting against yourself. If you can't fight against yourself, you definitely can't fight against the shaitan. And if you can't fight against the shaitan, you definitely can't fight against the enemies of Allah. That's what Ibn how Ibn al-Qayyim explained it like that. So the first person you have to fight to climb the mountain is you. And in all honesty, you are your biggest difficulty in climbing the mountain. And we know this because Allah Azza said, وَقَالَ الشَّيْطَانُ وَلَمَّا قُضِيَ الْأَمْرِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَعَدَكُمْ وَعَدَ الْحَقِّ وَوَعَدْتُكُمْ فَأَخْلَفْتُكُمْ وَمَا كَانَ لِي عَلَيْكُمْ مِنْ سُلْطَانٍ إِلَّا أَنْ دَعَوْتُكُمْ فَاسْتَجَبْتُمْ لِي فَلَا تَلُومُونِي وَلُومُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ The shaytan will say when everything is done, indeed Allah promised you and his promise was true and I promised you and I broke my promise. I never had any ability over you. The shaytan had no power to throw you off the mountain or take you off the path or take hold of you and put you on a different path. But the shaytan invited you and you answered. I invited you, you answered me. Don't blame me. Blame yourself. You're the one who answered. I told you this path was amazing and I lied to you. Sorry, but you know, you, you're the one who walked on it. I never pulled you. I never took you by the hand and forced you to come onto this path. I just told you it's the best path ever, it's more amazing, you love it, it's great. Don't worry that it doesn't look like it's going to Jannah. Eventually, you know, Allah, Allah Kareem, Allah is forgiving, Allah will take you there anyway. And the shaitan lied about what was on the path, but you are the one who chose to walk it. You chose to take that path. So don't blame me, but blame yourself. So the shaitan is not even the biggest problem. He's your enemy. But actually, the biggest thing you have to control to begin this climb is you have to control yourself. And if you control yourself, Allah will give you the ability to defeat the shaitan. And then Allah will give you the ability to defeat the wider group of people that are planning and plotting to take you away from that path. Basically, what we can take from this is that people always want to rest, right? Nobody wants the hard work. Nobody wants to work hard. Generally, typically your nafs inclines towards being a bit lazy and it doesn't really want to work hard. So you have to be in control of it. And I, I remember one of my mashayikh, he said to me something which I really, uh, I really benefited from it in the topic of tazkiyah to nafs, purifying yourself. Because this is tazkiyah to nafs, right? Because ultimately, there are two problems with mankind. One is al-zulm and one is al-jahl. Innahu kana zaluman jahula. There is the problem of oppression and there is the problem of ignorance. Ignorance, you fix it by learning. And oppression, how do you fix oppression? In yourself, not in other people. Oppression in other people, be just. But I'm talking about... How do you fix oppression in yourself, the characteristic of oppression in yourself? Tazkiyah, yeah? You, you purify yourself, tazkiyah to nafs. So that's why Ibn al-Qayyim, ta'ala, he said that the cure of ignorance is knowledge and the cure of the dhulm is tazkiyah, is purifying yourself. So right here now, a person seeks to purify uh, themselves and to struggle against their, 
to struggle against their soul. And the way the Sheikh explained it, he said to me, look, your soul is like a camel. The first time you get it to sit, it's very hard to make it sit. You have to drag it. The first time you're trying, you know, you're trying to keep your soul on the straight path. And the first time, you, you know, it's always disobedient to you. But once you make a habit of forcing it to sit for you, it will sit for you more. It will become easier every time. And how many of us seen that? I remember when I first became Muslim, I couldn't imagine praying five times a day. Like someone said to me, you pray five times a day. I was like, five times a day? Who can pray five times a day? And now, five times a day is like, I mean, it, it's, there's days where you don't eat, but you pray. Like, I mean, it's easier to pray than it is to eat. You know, like, it's, the, it, it's nothing because you build a habit of it, right? And that habit then leads you to, it becomes easy for you. And that's how your soul is. You keep on fighting with your soul on something and you, you never stop because there's always something new that your soul starts. The soul is always going the wrong way. It's like you're trying to go up the mountain and every time your soul keeps turning around and going back, you have to keep pulling it, forcing it to go the, right, the way that the knowledge has told you because the knowledge cured your ignorance. The knowledge has told you that Jannah is that way. The knowledge you got told you Jannah is that way, your soul keeps turning around and going backwards and the shaitan is not helping because he's whispering and telling your soul, no, no, dude, it's really good, come this way. So you keep going the wrong way, you have to pull your soul back. But the more you pull your soul in the right direction, the more it will listen. It will listen. And Allah hasn't made this religion hard. But Jannah is valuable. And something valuable doesn't come for free. You don't get something for nothing, right? You have to show that you... And, and in reality, with Jannah, you're getting way more than you deserve. Jannah is way, way more than the actions you do. Why is that? Someone say, well, Allah, I gave my whole life for Islam. How is Jannah? How can you say that? Because whatever you gave for Islam, Allah gave you much more in this dunya. If you take the blessings of Allah, if you take the blessings of Allah, and you take everything you've ever done for Islam, it will not even equal your eyesight. Say, okay, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to pray double now. So now at least I can make up for something. But the problem is you praying double is actually a blessing from Allah, and you still can't pay it back. So every blessing you get is another blessing and every action you do is still a blessing. So there's no way you can ever pay back Allah for what Allah has given you in the dunya. How about Jannah? But a person works to earn the mercy of Allah as a gift from Allah and a favor, to get the mercy of Allah as a gift and a favor. And that is what will enter a person into Jannah. So the question here is Allah asks what will make you know what this path is this Aqaba which is the mountain the mountain pass in other words what are the things which will let you know or what you should expect to find on this path or the things that will show you what this path is 
or show you how to pass the path. Because Allah said, In other words, how can you pass over this path? What will make you know what is the path, what's on the path, and how do I get over the path? So then Allah tells you, by freeing a slave. By freeing a slave. So Allah tells you, that these things are examples of the things that will bring you over the mountain. Why didn't you take the path that goes through the mountain? The mountain path. What will make you know what is this path? What's on the path? And what will help you to cross the path? So now Allah is going to give you a list of ibadat, of acts of worship, and these acts of worship are going to be what is going to get you over that, that mountain. Freeing a slave. Or feeding. It'am. It'am. Is to feed. Is to feed. To feed. في يوم ذي مسغبة, meaning the shidda wahaja, on a day when people are in distress and difficulty. To feed people, it'am means to give ta'am to someone else, to give food to someone else. To give food to someone on a day that is the masgaba, a day that is the shidda wahaja, a day that is a day of hardship and a day of need, and this has a, a really, really, really uh, amazing uh, benefit in it, which is this issue of. what sometimes we call tafadul al-a'mal, the different deeds, which is more, which deed is more valuable when, right? Like, how do we know which of our deeds is the most valuable at which time? Notice, it'am al-ta'am, giving out food to people, is beneficial all the time. What did the Prophet say? Afshu salam wa at'im al-ta'am. He said, he was asked about how to go to Jannah, or how he said, he told us how to go to Jannah easily, how to go to Jannah safely. So this hadith goes together with the ayah. This hadith can go with it. The Prophet said, Give the salam, spread the salam out to people, say salamu alaykum, and feed people, and pray at night when the people are sleeping. You're going to go to Jannah with safety. In the hadith, 
it just generally mentions giving out food. Giving out food to people. But when is giving out food the most valuable? When is it the most uh, valuable? In a time fi yawmin di maskhara. Fi yawmin di shiddatin wa In a time where people are in desperate need. And that's why people always ask, you know, like, as an example, you see a lot of people, and, and it's amazing, they, their attachment is sadaqa jariya, for example. They love giving sadaqa jariya, sadaqa jariya. But food isn't sadaqa jariya, right? We all agree that giving out food is not sadaqa jariya because the sadaqa jariya is something where the benefit of the sadaqa is continuous. Like the example the Prophet gave, man waratha mushafa, whoever leaves behind a mushaf, a copy of the Quran, every time someone reads the mushaf, that person gets the reward. But the food, it finishes when the person eats it. So some people, because they see that sadaqa jariya just goes on and on and on and on forever, they're like, okay, I'm going to give all my money to sadaqa jariya. But sadaqa jariya is an amazing, amazing thing. But it's not always the best sadaqa. It depends on the situation. What about if you are fi yawmin di maskhaba? In a day where people are starving. In a day where people are suffering. Is it the right thing at that time to say, here's a mushaf you can read? Nothing wrong with that. It's khair, had a khair. But better than it is to give the people what they need at that time. And this is a, a really min fiqh sadaqat from the fiqh of giving sadaqah that we don't see a lot of in this time. Like for example, I used to, um, at times, work with different organizations and things that give out sadaqat and things like that. And I used to see that sometimes people don't have this fiqh in terms of sadaqah, where to give it and when to give it. So you see, they just keep building masajid. And that's amazing. Wallah, it's beautiful building a masjid. Whoever builds a masjid, Allah builds a house for them in Jannah, mashaAllah. But you see people starving, and still, are we going to build another one? Next, 10 meters away from the last, you know, like, not, okay, not 10 meters, but, you know, a couple of hundred meters away from the last one, and still the people are starving. And then 300 meters down the road, we're going to build another one, and still the people are starving. So, there's nothing wrong with building. It's an amazing thing to do. It's from the greatest of the sadaqat a person can do. But you have to try and understand that the value of sadaqah changes depending on the situation. And the greatest example is I'm going to feed people because today is a day where people are starving. So I need to feed those people on that day. That's what my... That's the best sadaqah I can give on that day. And that's why this issue of uh, the different virtues of deeds is not an easy one to deal with. Someone asked about this after the khutbah today. How do you rate which deed is better and which one is not? It actually changes depending on situation. Uh, depending on the situation. And if a person, all sadaqah is good, but if a person has a, a lot of thought about this, they can get more out of their sadaqah because they start thinking not just which sadaqah is best because, okay, sadaqah jariyah is, has more multiplication than, than regular sadaqah because it keeps going. But at the same time, Allah mentioned that what's going to get you over the mountain 
the mountain path is feeding people on a day where people are desperate for food. So you, it's not so easy. Like I give an example, people talk about um, the best of deeds. When the Prophet ﷺ was asked about the best of deeds, did he give the same answer every time? When he was asked about which, which part of Islam is the best. I mean, okay, definitely it's uh, Tawheed and La ilaha illallah he gave that, that was the standard answer. But generally speaking, when he's asked about what good deed, what good deed shall I do? What part of Islam is best? What good deed is best? What's most beloved to Allah? You start seeing the answers are different. Why are the answers different? Because depending on the, circum the way circumstances change, the way circumstances and situations change. Did we have a question on YouTube? Is there an equivalent to freeing a slave today? The concept of slavery is something that uh, continues It's not something that is, has ended for good Because Allah uh, put a system in place for dealing with slavery That will last until Yawm Al-Qiyamah Allah put a system in place for dealing with slavery that will last until Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And a person never knows. And situations change from place to place. Uh, slavery can happen as a consequence of war, right? We're not talking about... See, the thing is, I didn't want to go in too much into Islam and slavery because it's a, big, it's a big, big topic. And it's more of a fiqh topic than the tafsir topic here. Uh, but I do want to highlight a few things. That slavery that Islam dealt with was not the slavery of Jahiliyyah. The slavery of Jahiliyyah, of the time prior to Islam, was the slavery that we saw in terms of the Western world, when people were kidnapped from Africa and sold into slavery. That is the slavery of what? Of Jahiliyyah. Because it's not slavery that is built upon a shar'i reason. It's not built upon an Islamic reason. And wallah, you, that's what you see, subhanAllah, from the people that were taken and enslaved and sent to the West as slaves were ulama, big scholars of Islam, were sold into, were, were stolen, kidnapped from their countries in Africa and sold into slavery in the West. This slavery was zulm, it was oppression. And it has nothing to do with the Islamic rules of slavery because those people were enslaved by zulm, by oppression. They were not, it wasn't something which Allah Azza wa Jal legislated. They were kidnapped and they were enslaved. And that is not the first time it happened, by the way. Because kidnapping and enslaving people was very common in the time prior to Islam. And even there are stories of it happening to the Sahaba. Several of the Sahaba were uh, kidnapped and forced into slavery Rather before them Who did it happen to? The very famous story Yusuf That he was taken from the well Did anyone say he was taken from the well And said this belongs this boy Let's go find his father No they took him from the well They said They said this is but we've got, we've got ourselves a, a boy we can sell into slavery. They took him as something to be sold. So 
the point here is that Islam had a completely different concept of slavery. But just to give a simple example, and the reason I mention that right now is because this is a hot topic at the moment. You see at the moment, a lot of people are going back and asking about the legacy of slavery and the people who were involved in slavery. I don't want any Muslim to think that Islam had anything to do with that. Rather, Islam was, were among, the Muslims were among the victims of that. They were not among the perpetrators of it. And that's why you have stories of great ulama, scholars of Islam, who were taken and they were enslaved. So, just so people understand in context that Islam had nothing to do with that. But Islam encouraged the freeing of slaves. Now, what is the Islamic slavery? Typically, it is what we would now call a prisoner of war. That's what Islamic slavery is. Now, we would call it a prisoner of war. And wallahi, wallahi, I'm not shy to say that the Islamic system of enslaving prisoners of war is so much more merciful than the system they have for prisoners of war today. Prisoners of war today, just read your history, what happens to prisoners of war. What they do to them, they lock them in cages, they make them uh, yeah, I mean, uh, dig tunnels until they die, they bury them inside of it, the uh, rape, murder, all these things that happen to these people who are UN prisoners of war, you know, like they're supposed to be, this is supposed to be the civilized way of dealing with things. The Islamic way was much more simple. The prisoners of war became slaves. Now you clothe them with what you clothe yourself with. You house them where you house yourself. You feed them with your own food. And you free them at every opportunity. But Allah, if someone understands what Islam is, they will see that all justice is in Islam. And all oppression is outside of Islam. So Islam, uh, today, there isn't really... Uh, a system of enslaving prisoners of war typically among countries what we have instead is we have a concept of prisoners of war so they are imprisoned but not enslaved that's the the urf today the kind of way that people do things today when they fight wars they don't enslave people but they imprison them and so for that reason there isn't a large number of there aren't a large number of, of slaves from, from uh, prisoners of war. And therefore, really, there isn't a, a big opportunity to free slaves. But we're not going to say the issue doesn't exist. At the end of the day, uh, even freeing a slave who was taken in zulm is still from the great good deeds, right? Didn't Abu Bakr? Abu Bakr freed how many of the slaves? In huge numbers of slaves, Abu Bakr radiallahu an. He freed them, like Bilal radiallahu and others that Abu Bakr purchased and freed, whether they were enslaved uh, legitimately or incorrectly. Uh, in Medina, the stories of the Sahaba who were enslaved and the Sahaba cooperated together, uh, Salman al-Farisi, other stories like that, where people were taken, kidnapped, forced to work, and then the Sahaba came together to free them. So you might still find slavery that is based upon oppression somewhere in the world uh, in which there is an opportunity to purchase the slave and free them for the sake of Allah. But this is something that really in our time, we don't, it's, it's not, if, if it exists, it's, it's nadir, it's extremely rare if it exists. Something similar to freeing a slave doesn't quite come under fakku raqaba, but it's, 
connected to it, is connected to it, is to free someone from kufr and to call them to Islam. I don't call it, it's not, it's not fatku raqaba, it's not quite freeing a slave, but it's, if slavery to a human being is something, you know, is something uh, which gives a person a very low status, right? When a person becomes a slave, their status is very low. How about slavery to the shaitan? How about slavery to your desires? How about slavery to idols? Yeah? So ultimately, if we can't free a slave today, which is an actual slave, well, at least the minimum we can do is to try to free people from the slavery, which is the slavery of themselves and the slavery of the shaitan. And that's why Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala, has a beautiful line in his Nuniyya. Wallahi, this is such an amazing thing he said. He said, He said, they ran away from the slavery they were created for. What slavery were we created for? What slavery were we created for? All of us were created to be slaves. Slaves to whom? Allah. They ran away from the slavery they were created for, so they fell into the slavery of themselves and the slavery of the shaitan. Well, I, I, I think if you were to write this in gold, it would not be a waste of gold, to be honest with you. If you look outside, look at these people. You live in a society where these people tell you you're free. Wallahi. They ran away from slavery and they said, we are free. We are free people. You live in a free country. This country is free. Do whatever you want. And wallahi, they're more slave. They fell into more slavery than the one that they ran away from. They're more of a slave. They are slave to their desires. They're a slave to the shaitan. This is why, look at this idea, and I know we're going to get off the topic, but why not? Look at this idea of women being free. When they tell you, you know, come to the UK, you can be free. The women here are free. They're completely free. Freedom. Say to them, They ran away from the slavery that they were created for to be a slave to Allah. And they became slaves to themselves in the shaitan. And wallah, they think that they're free. And wallahi, they are, there is no Emma who is a, a real female slave who is in a worse situation than they are. They have to dress the way they dress to please what men think. To please men. They put themselves wearing nothing naked on a billboard and they say, I'm free. You're not free, you're enslaved. This is slavery. Then they say to Muslim, a Muslim woman who covers her hair, covers her face and her hands and so on, they say, you're enslaved. Well, Allah say back to her, I'm not the one who is, I'm not the one who is enslaved here. And maybe I'm a slave to Allah. You're the one who's enslaved. But look at how the shaitan changed their mindset and their mentality that they actually think this slavery is freedom. They're in a slavery that is the worst kind of slavery a person can be in. 
and they think that it is freedom. They really believe that they're in a situation where they are free, but they don't say that, see that they are actually slaves to those men in a way that there is no slavery like it. But they can't see it. And they keep telling themselves, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. But wallahi, if you're not a slave to Allah, which you were created for, you're going to end up being a slave to yourself and a slave to the shaitan. And the men's situation is the same. If you're not going to be a slave to Allah, you're going to end up being a slave to the shaitan and a slave to yourself. And that is the worst of the worst. Because you can be a slave to a human being and still be a slave of Allah. You can still be a Muslim. You can be a Muslim slave. You could be enslaved by a person but still, still pray to Allah Azza wa But the worst of the slavery, which is asfalasafilin, the lowest of the law, is the slavery to the shaitan. And the shaitan is the worst kind of master. The worst master and the worst kind of slavery is the slavery to slavery to the shaitan. So maybe you can say if we can't free a slave physically today, at least we can free people from the slavery that they are living in right now. The slavery to the shaitan and the slavery to their nafs and take them to slavery to Allah. And the ajeeb thing is that slavery to Allah is the highest status a person can reach. What's the evidence? What's the evidence? That being a slave of Allah is the highest position a person can reach. Slavery to the shaitan is the lowest. And slavery to a human being is pretty low down on the scale, right? If someone says, I'm, I'm a slave, right? I'm enslaved. That's a pretty low position in the society. What's the evidence that being a slave to Allah is the highest place you can reach? Well, that's true. You don't care about what happens to your life, but you need evidence. <laughs> okay, so one evidence is that Allah calls the angels his slaves. That's a good evidence, but there's a... Someone could argue that's the angels. Angels have, like, no choice in the matter. They don't... So, is there an example we can give for a hum, human beings that would show us that being a slave to Allah is the highest... Position that a person can reach is the highest status you can have. Aya, hadith, as you like. Ijma'a, no problem. Subhanalladhi asra bi abadihi laylam min al masjid al haram ila al masjid al aqsa ladhi barakna hawla. Or any of the ayat in which Allah calls the Prophet my slave. The Prophet we all agree, highest lineage, highest status, number one out of all the children of Adam, and I say you do well the Adam I am the best of all the children of Adam. And yet in the position, let me ask you this question. The Prophet is the best of the children of Adam, right? Out of all of all of human beings, he's the best. As for the angels, the scholars will we'll not get into the whole issue of the whole of creation and the angel. Let's leave that aside. Let's just stick to a simple thing. He's the best of the children of Adam. When was he at his highest status? Like when did, what event comes to mind when Allah really raised him up to the highest place? Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj, right? In that event, when you have the best of the children of Adam, in the highest place that a person so high that Jibreel said, I'm not allowed to go where you're going to go. Jibreel said to him, I'm not allowed to go past this point. 
here I stop. Jibreel is not allowed to go that high. And the Prophet ﷺ went that high. In that state, in that place, what did Allah call the Prophet ﷺ? Subhanalladhi asra bi'abadihi, my slave. The best of the children of Adam in the highest place that anyone can go and he's called my slave. And that's an evidence that slavery to Allah is the highest, like they call it maqam al Servitude and slavery to Allah is the highest that a person can go. The highest that a person can go. If the adhan time comes, we'll pause the class to give the adhan. If, I don't know who's watching the adhan time. Just check on the, just check because that, that clock's not very, uh, maybe not very reliable. Just check the timetable. Definitely? It seems early 20 minutes. 44, okay. When the time comes, we'll pause it and we'll, then we'll just continue, inshallah. Okay, so we got the freeing of a slave and we got the feeding of the aw'it'amun. Who are you going to feed? So not only did Allah tell you about the situation, is that the people are in a state of desperate need, the people are in a state of severity, and you're feeding the people in a state of severity, but Allah tells us who you're going to feed. You're going to feed yatiman. Who is yatim? Who can give me a defi definition of yatim? What does the word yatim mean? An orphan. Who is an orphan in Islam? In Islam. The Prophet was an orphan. Up to a point. Up to a point. But what makes a person an orphan? What's the fiqh definition of an orphan? You got half of it. You don't have a father, that's uh, half of it. You lost your father. There's another half. Before, not quite, nearly, you lost your father before maturity. Whoever lost their father before the age of puberty. After the age of puberty, we don't call them yatim. We don't call them an orphan. We say they were an orphan, but we don't call them a yatim when they reach the age of adulthood. Before they become an adult, they are an orphan, whoever loses their father. Tayyib, what about someone who loses their mother? We don't call them an orphan. They're an orphan if they lose their father before puberty. Because the father is the one who is given the responsibility in Islam of paying for them, looking after them, spending on them, protecting them by the permission of Allah. So losing the father is a big thing. And we spoke about the yatim already in the tafsir of the Qur'an. We spoke about the yatim. Where did we speak about the yatim? We definitely spoke about the yatim already. Anyways, we'll think about it. We spoke about the yatim already, and we said that looking after the orphan. Imagine the orphan is someone who is First of all, they don't have someone looking after them. They don't have someone to look after them. They don't have someone to protect them. I'm talking about after Allah, they don't have someone to protect them, to really like defend them. 
And I don't know if you guys saw, but when we did the, um, the Muslim family uh, episodes, we spoke about the fact that one of the great things a parent can do for their child is to defend your child. Like, look at how the Prophet ﷺ was with, uh, with Fatima radiallahu anha when Ali wanted to marry the daughter of Abu Jahl uh, radiallahu anha and he wanted to marry her and the Prophet ﷺ became angry and he said, Fatima is from me and whoever makes her upset makes me upset. So defending your children is a major part of parenthood. What do you do if you don't have that figure who is going to defend you? And then the child starts to get older and the child starts to realize that their dad's not with them. And maybe the other kids start making fun of them and start saying, oh, you know, you don't have a dad. Or they start to say, I'm going out with my dad. Me and my dad are going out. Me and my dad, my dad's taking me this. My dad bought me this present. And this orphan is sitting there thinking, I don't have a dad. I think we pause it there. Pause it, pause it, inshallah. Just put it on pause for a second while we give the adhan. I'm going to leave it in, in to give up. Okay, so we're just going to finish off this. Uh, we we'll finish off this segment because I don't want to. I, I don't mind doing another uh, day on the tafsir, but I, I want to uh, finish this segment. Otherwise, we're not going to. Surat al-Duha. Ah, uh, it was. It was Surat al-Ma'un. We spoke about it in Surat al-Ma'un, and we spoke about it in Surat al-Duha. So, the yatim is described as is described as yatiman the maqaraba. Maqaraba here means qaraba, meaning a yatim who is your relative. The yatim who is your relative has two rights over you. 
the right of the yatim, the right of the orphan. And we said, you know, the yatim, subhanAllah, especially when they get older. And the other children are saying, my father does this, my father did this, my father gives me this. So that's why softening the heart is when you rub your head, you rub your hand over the head of the orphan. It softens your heart. You look after the orphan. And the Prophet ﷺ told us that the one who, he, who raises the orphan or takes care of the orphan, that he and I will be like this in paradise. And he put his two, he put his two fingers together. This orphan has two rights. The right of the orphan and the right of the qurba, the relative. And relatives and your family is sadaqah, is most deserving to be given towards your, your poor family members because they have two rights over you. They have the right of al-qarib, the, the family member, and the right of the yatim. Is it the case that all of the yatama, the orphans, are deserving of zakat, for example? Is zakat, does zakat go to an orphan? An orphan is not one of the categories of the zakat. The question is, is the orphan poor or not? Because some orphans are very wealthy. They need taken care of. But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily poor. Some orphans can be more wealthy than any of us. Their father left behind millions of pounds for them. But the issue is they still need someone to look after them, take care of them, you know, be kind of like a father figure for them. Here we're talking about feeding, so we're talking about the poor orphan. And here this orphan is poor, so they have the right of the orphan. They have the right of the miskin, the poor person. And they have the right of the qareeb, the person who is your relative. Likewise, the neighbor. The neighbor has another right on top of you. So you're always looking at starting with the people who have those big rights over you, your close family members and so on, and then outwards and outwards and so on. Aw miskinan, matraba, Or a miskin person, a poor person. A poor person and included in this could be the orphan who is not your your uh, family member because remember the orphan that is mentioned in the first part of the first uh, ayah is the orphan mentioned in the first ayah is the orphan who is your family member your orphan who is from your family and the one in the second ayah is the poor person generally so this can be the, the one that is from your family and the one that is not from that is not from your family. And the poor person is described as the matraba. What's turab? Dust. The matraba. Some of the scholars of tafsir, they said, it's as though the person, the only thing that they have is dust. It's like that. Like someone who is so abject, in such abject poverty, such severe poverty, that the only thing that they have, it's like they have just buried themselves in the dust, like they've covered themselves in the, in the dust, or like the only thing that they own is dust. Aw miskinan, the matraba. 
or a poor person like that. But some of the scholars of tafsir, they didn't say that. They said, they said, the one who has a family. They said, it means the poor person who has a family. And this is more beneficial. It's another reason about fiqh sadaqat the fiqh of giving sadaqah, that looking at the poor person that has a family, you're going to benefit not just them, but you're going to benefit their whole family. And then more, that gives more than just the poor person who is by themselves. And you know, like as a single guy, you can, you know, you can have sabr with some situations, but it's difficult when it starts to affect your children. And you see poverty affecting your children. The word in the Quran doesn't, uh, doesn't mean family. But some of the scholars mentioned it in the, by meaning, as in the context of the one who is really suffering the most is the one who has, is poor and has to also support their family. Otherwise, the meaning of the ayah is the one that the one who has absolutely nothing. Is that the only pe pe person you can give sadaqah to? The one who has absolutely nothing. Is the, is, is the condition for zakah, for example. We're not just talking about zakah, but sadaqah generally. But I mean zakah is the condition for zakah. They have to be the matraba. They have to have nothing, zero. A traveler, true. You can give it to a traveler. But let's look at just, I'm just looking at poor people. You know, like for example, to, to qualify for... Universal credit, for example, you have to have you have to have a certain you have to have a certain amount of inc little income compared to expenses and stuff like that. In Islam, what is the threshold for zakah and poor people? You complicated it with education, I, but you're right. But you just made, you made it more difficult than it had to be. It's a person who doesn't have enough for their basic essentials. So what you say is perfectly correct. It's someone who doesn't have enough for your basic essentials. What are the basic essentials? This is where there is might be some difference among the scholars. Is education a basic essential or not? What I mean is if you're in a country where you have to pay for your education and someone says, I've got enough for my rent, I've got enough for my food, I've got enough for my bills, but I don't have enough to pay for my children's education. Is it an essential? Many of the scholars of our time say it's from the taruriyat, it's from the essential things that a person can't live without because even their, their earning and their job and so on. But maybe in every country is a bit different, right? Everywhere is different because some places... Maybe your private school is not essential. You can get a public school and things like that. But generally, they don't have enough money for their essential needs. That's the understanding of the person who is entitled to the zakah. As for the sadaqah, there is no limit to it. You can give sadaqah to a rich person if you want, but it wouldn't be as beneficial as the sadaqah that you give to the poor person, as the sadaqah you give to the person who has a family and is poor and so on. So... You can give sadaqah to anyone you want. You can give sadaqah to a rich person, but you need to try to give your sadaqah where it's most beneficial.
So we can finish with a principle that we can take from all of this statement in Surah Al-Balad. What principle are we going to take? When it comes to sadaqah, the greater the need of the person, the more reward you get in your sadaqah. That's the qa'idah we're going to put here. We're going to put a principle and we're going to say the principle of where you give your sadaqah is the greater the need of your sadaqah, the more reward there is. So in a place where, and wallah, it's not, wallah, even the imam of the masjid was telling me that when he grew up, he said, we didn't have a mushaf for everyone. Not everyone had a copy of the Qur'an, Not everyone had a copy of the Qur'an. We had to go and the whole people in the village, they had to go and there's like one Qur'an and they have to borrow it to learn the surah and give it back and then like that. They didn't have a Qur'an for, they didn't have a Qur'an for everyone. So in that case, they had food, but they didn't have a Qur'an for everyone. What might be the, the sadaqah with the most reward? It would be to, leave, to, to, to give a Qur'an, for example. But in a situation where people are starving of hunger, the best sadaqah wouldn't be to give a copy of the Qur'an. The best sadaqah is the one that fulfills the greatest need. I thought we were going to finish the surah, but we didn't. <laughs> I went off on a tangent and we didn't get a chance to finish it. Does anyone have any questions before we conclude and we break up for Salatul Isha? Anyone got any questions? Any questions from the YouTube? I'm going to give them 10 seconds, see how quick they can type. They're typing. Okay, we'll let them type. Okay, put, put that on the, you can put that on the screen. It's a good question. So this question says uh, that the early generations didn't used to wish for death. Actually, we have a hadith, we have a nas in this, so we, don't, we, we have a clear text. The Prophet said, لا أحدكم الموت he said, don't let anyone wish for death because of a hardship that happened for them. Uh, if the person must wish for it, then let them say, Allahumma ahini ma kanat al-hayatu khayran li wa tawaffani idha kanat al-wafatu khayran li. Oh Allah, make me live as long as life is good for me and cause me to die when death is good for me. Five. There's a difference between wishing to die and between longing for Jannah. I long for Jannah, but I know that Jannah is on the other side of the mountain. So I want to go as far up the mountain as I can to do as many good deeds as I can to get as much out of my life as I can. That doesn't stop my longing for Jannah. Wishing for death is like, alas, I'm sick of doing my good deeds here in this life. I've had enough of my salah, I've had enough of my... These things, I just want to die. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ said, لا أَحَدُكُمُ الْمَوْتِ نَزَلَ بِهِ Because something bad happened to him. 
He didn't say don't long for Jannah. He said don't wish to die because something bad happened to you. And that's the way you reconcile between the two. That's the way that we reconcile between the two. La go, you have one more? Go on quickly. Two more? Yalla. Surah. So, the, that's a really good question. You can put it on the screen for everyone. So, the question is, sponsoring an orphan, is that the same as the one who looks after the orphan? So, it's a part of it, no doubt. But it's not the same as the one who has the, really, you know, takes the orphan in and gives the orphan everything they need. But it's a big part of it. So, you get a share in it, right? So, when you pay for an orphan, you pay to sponsor an orphan, what happens you pay for someone to look after that orphan, right? There's a share now between you and between them. They have a share because they are the ones who are actually looking after them and taking care of them. And you have a share because you're supporting that financially. And inshallah, the reward will be for both of the people who are involved. But it's not uh, exactly the same as the person who does both of those things themselves. But inshallah, the reward, I need the... The, the, the grace of Allah is wasi. It's a lot. It was too much. I mean, you can't put a limit on Allah's grace and mercy. Yeah. Last one. Well, I asked this to one of the Talabat al ilm It's a very good question. They said, a daughter, a daughter. This is a, I didn't know the answer to this question. I had to ask uh, one of the students of knowledge about it. A girl reaches the age of puberty. A girl, she reaches the age of puberty, but she's not married. Is she an orphan or not? And the answer was, she's not an orphan. She stops being an orphan at puberty, but she is from the Aramil, the women who are in need of, the, the single women who are in need of being taken care of. So she doesn't go from orphan to everything's fine. She goes from orphan to a lady in need of care. But she's no longer an orphan when she reaches the age of puberty. She's not an orphan anymore, but she is a lady in need of care until she gets married. So she's still given social support by the state from the Beit al-Mal. We're going to stop there. That's what Allah made easy for me to mention. Allah knows best. Wa salatu ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Oh,